This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Schoolitics. Districts across the country use Schoolitics every day to easily manage and analyze student data while reclaiming time and resources for what matters most, helping students reach their full potential. In fact, students in Schoolitics classrooms are up to 10% more likely to complete their assignments on time. Schoolitics offers a free account for teachers and a free pilot program for districts. Get started today at Schoolitics. That's school, Y-T-I-C-S. And you can find them at edcuration.com. Schoolitics, powerful analytics for impact-driven educators. I think the issue with secondary is that we're still holding on, both hands, tightly. And the point I'm trying to make is, they're getting older, it's time to let go because otherwise there'll be no transition for them between secondary and higher education or between secondary education and career. And then they're gonna look at us and say, how do I, how do I life? And we won't have given them those skills. Student-led learning and giving up control is today's topic with our guest, educator and author, Miriam Platinsky. Since this podcast is audio only, you can't appreciate that Miriam looks far too young to have had the career that she's had, but she spent the better part of 20 years as a secondary teacher, mainly English. She was department chair and then led staff development for her entire district. And then she became an instructional specialist across content areas. And that was all before she turned her lifelong devotion to writing into a profession. You'll find her articles in publications like Education Week, Edutopia, and EdSurge, just to name a few. And you know how we all felt the pressure of using the pandemic to write our book or learn a new language? Well, Miriam actually did it. And she came today to tell us about her first book, Teach More, Hover Less. I wanted to know how she settled on this topic. It began with a class that I taught, a creative writing class, and it was accidentally a student-centered class. I didn't really set out that way for that to happen. It, it evolved over the course of, of several years, and I started applying what I was teaching in that class in terms of methodology and approach to the more, um, let's just say, traditional classes with curriculum that's, that's more set, that's more, more established. Um, and then that was, that was one piece of it. Early in the pandemic, I was supporting schools, and I kept hearing the same things from teachers. They kept saying, we can't do the things we always do. We can't pull kids in from the hallway when they haven't given us their work or when they need support, we can't reach them, we can't get to them, we don't know what to do, they're failing. And, and you know, we used to teach them five hours a week, and now we're teaching them for 45 minutes a week. Well, how are we supposed to do this? And I started thinking about how much power we give proximity, how much power we give our physical presence to kids, and to what degree do we believe that kids need to be right in front of us at all times? Even, even sort of in a more metaphorical sense, do we need to be right next to them? Do we need to be looking at what they're doing? Or can we give them a little bit more, a little bit more leeway? So that, that was the beginning of how this, how this book began. And I realized that what I had been doing for a lot of my career, which was to essentially, the way I initially looked at it was to make my own teaching life a little easier, to do less and have my students do more. But I don't mean that in the I'm not planning, I'm not an expert in the classroom because there are misunderstandings about what this is. And I can clear some of those up as we, as we talk, but it was just to make things a little bit less about me and more about them. Yeah. 
It's not the teacher sitting in front of the classroom reading the newspaper. No, yeah. although that would have been fun. <laughs> That's not student-led learning. But I, so I know what you mean. I think there are yeah. some misunderstandings around this that mm-hmm. um, somehow we're not doing our job if we're allowing students to lead. And yes. it actually is that we're, I think we're doing our job better. So you, in your book, you talk about hands-off instruction and you outlined four stages of hands-off instruction in your book. So can you nut, just give a nutshell description for our listeners of each one of those stages? Sure. So what I, what I, my intention in designing these four stages was to move readers through them one by one. You could do it sequentially. That's how I, I would personally do it, but you can also read about each one in and of itself. And they work together to create this, this hands-off hover-free approach. So the first one is reframing the way that we think about student learning. So that's a mindset shift. And the mindset shift is what do we believe about what students can learn and how they learn? So that part of the book takes readers through a lot of different activities. Are you a micromanager? You can take a little quiz that tells you if you're a micromanager. You can do sort of a self-assessment of whether your tendencies go that way. And mine certainly did for many, many years. I'm the person with the most detailed subplans ever that kind of thing. So that's the first part is just some self-reflection and awareness because as teachers, we don't change unless we can be self-reflective. All good shifts start with reflection, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been really worried about teachers who think that they've got it figured out. Well, and not only reflection on our own practice, but on what we believe about our students. That's huge. And I think we don't always ask ourselves that. Well, and not just what we believe, but whether or not our actions support that. So I might say that I believe that all students can do something, but then when I teach in a classroom, is that borne out by my actions? And can I catch those contradictions and course correct? Do I have that level of self-awareness and reflection? So that's that's a really important piece of it as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So mindset is number one. It's number one. And number two, um, you focus on student relationships. You call deeper relationships. So talk about yeah. We talk about relationships a lot. You know, let's form connections with students. Let's learn about who they are. Let's talk to them in the hallway. All of that is important. And I don't want to discount the importance of personal relationships. However, I think what's more important is an academic relationship. And what that means is that we as teachers create an affirming space for students to share their ideas as learners. And a lot of the time we accidentally invalidate students without meaning to. And it seems like not that big a deal, but then for our students who don't express themselves as vocally or who internalize a lot of what happens in a classroom, we can damage a relationship without knowing. So for example, if a student raises her hand and I call on her and she gives a response, she's taking a risk a lot of the time in speaking up. And if I don't find a way to make that response important, I'm making a mistake. And that could be as simple as my simply moving on saying something like, well, that's a good place to start, but what about if someone else shares an idea? So I'm not trying to be dismissive of her, but that's what's happening. And I'm not saying we have to catch all of that because it's impossible, but it does happen more than we think. I feel like what you're saying actually can foster a much more significant kind of relationship with a student Mm -hmm. as you're inviting their thinking into the classroom. What is your favorite strategy for doing this? I really like pointing to specific ideas. And one of the one of my favorite kinds of ideas to point to is a mistake. Mm-hmm. So ask a question, and it's it should be a question that has some depth. And I ask students to write a response on a post-it note or a small piece of paper 
and give it to me. And then we go through, we pick some at random and we pick our favorite, what we call our favorite mistake, which is the one that is not necessarily the answer that a textbook would look for. It's an anonymous thing. So no, no one's putting their personal risk out there. It's not saying, oh, you know, Christy, you said, and that's wrong because. And it's also, oh, here's, here's, here's the thinking of the student. And I can see how we would do this. And I can see why you might think that. And it's so great because this idea shows so much thought. So you're really validating the process of thinking and the value of ideas. And one thing I always said to my students as an ELA teacher is, when you have an idea for writing and the product isn't what you wanted it to be, don't throw away the idea. The idea is probably awesome. It's the execution that we need to work on. So don't give up. And so it's those really big emphases that we have on your thoughts are valuable. You, you have something to give us that the rest of us don't have. The smartest person in the room is the room. We all work together to do this. Um, and I think that for me as a learner, when I was growing up, I didn't have any of that. No, I didn't either. It was a different time. <laughs> but um, this is so exciting to think about a classroom operating in this way, because that is actually feedback that a student can do something with. It's mm-hmm. so far beyond here was your grade, you know, and maybe even here's what you need to work on. But like, it's describing for the student where they're at. This is what I see in your thinking. And it gives them next steps. And I think when we talk about feedback, sometimes we, we, make it difficult for students because we confuse feedback with evaluation. Feedback is here you are in relation to what I asked for. So I asked you for five sentences and you gave me three. So we're not there yet. And here's why. And then it takes the personal thing out of it. And students don't feel as though they're being judged for who they are. So we've talked about mindset and deeper relationships. And number three is planning for engagement. What do you mean by that? So what does it really mean for someone to be engaged? My own opinion is that if we want students to be more interested in what we're doing, we have to ask them a little bit more than we're asking. If we ask kids more questions about what they know, we're not going to be, we hypothesize all the time. And I wonder why, you know, I was sitting in a meeting with a bunch of teachers a few years back and they were talking about a book that kids had read and they had read it. They said, oh my God, kids are reading this book. They're actually reading it. Why are they reading it? And they started coming up with all kinds of reasons. And when there was a pause, I said, this might be, you might've already done this. So I'm sorry if, if you have, but have you asked them why they're reading it? And, you know, we don't think about that. And so in the planning for engagement, I recommend a few different things Anything from asking kids in advance, like, this is the unit we're about to do. It's about this. Do you know anything about this already? What do you wish you'd learned? What isn't working for you so far? Just get their opinion and their ideas about things. And then I'm really a big believer in what's called a feedback on feedback protocol, which is kids tell you how they're doing and what they're learning and what they're not learning and what would work better. And then you come back the next day after they've given you that feedback and show them what's going to be different or what's not based on what they said. So maybe you can't make a change. Maybe it's just going to be the way it's going to be, but tell them why. And if you're going to do something different, like I did a lot of Zoom teaching the past couple of years, my classes kept saying, can we do something besides a breakout room to talk to each other? And so I started experimenting with other ways to talk and other ways to interact, jam boards and ways to do whole group discussions from afar. And every time I would say, 
We're going to try this because you asked for it. It might tank. Just be aware. But we're going to do it. So that's, that's another way to plan for engagement is to show people that you're not collecting feedback to go into some vacuum or because people think you should do that as a formality. I think that happens to teachers a lot where we're asked for our opinions and then sometimes those conclusions are already foregone about what's going to happen. So, you know, kids deserve the same courtesy. Yeah, and it communicates that the the success or failure of what we're about to do with this quest for learning is not solely on my shoulders. It's our quest. It the success or failure lies on in all of our laps based on our investment. I can't make it succeed. We have to do it together. So, planning for engagement and then I feel like this probably just leads right into number four, which is choice-based hands-off instruction. So mm-hmm. talk about how that builds into number four. That's the execution. We planned and now it's time to teach. And, and with the choices, we know that students have more intrinsic motivation to be part of whatever learning is going on when they have some choices. Not saying it can happen every day or every minute. They can't always choose what's happening because they're not the teacher and they don't have that expertise. But when and where we can, we're giving them options for how they work. So, for example, if we have three big things that are happening in an instructional week, when and where are they happening? Are we making everybody work on the same projects at the same time? Or are we finding ways to give some options about when and how they work so that if a kid walks into a classroom one or two days a week, and they don't feel like reading that day or that moment, they can pick the other thing to work on. Are we just, and it's not changing our lesson plans. It's not changing our agenda. We're not adjusting anything that has to happen other than the delivery on certain days of the week. So that that section of the book really gives some options for how that might look. That is so refreshing because we all do that. I come to my desk in the morning and I look at the tasks that I have to do and I have scheduled them out. But sometimes I'll think, oh, I just don't have the focus for that thing right now, but I could do this thing. You know, what, exactly. why do you give kids that? Exactly. And, you know, the example I always give for myself personally is, you know, I'm a writer. I have to write at the beginning of the day. In those first couple hours before work gets going and I'm at my most productive, my brain, I've got the coffee, you know, my, my daily coffee is there. That has to happen. If I try it later, it's not that it necessarily won't, but it's not as, I don't feel as good about it. I'm more likely to put it off. And I can make that choice. I have that freedom. Yeah. And we don't give that to kids. We never give that to them. We never say to them, what, what, are, what are you feeling like doing in this moment that is the most productive? And I'm not saying you can do anything you want. It's not a free-for-all, but you have these things to do, which yeah. comes first. And what do you need in order to get in the zone? Mm-hmm. quiet I need music I need a drink I need you know and we have these arbitrary rules sometimes like no music and after a certain point it comes down to our respect for individuals are we treating our students like people so persuade our listeners about why this pedagogical shift towards student-led learning and these choices and this hover-free classroom is so important and particularly important at this stage, right? Because school has changed. The focus, the philosophy, the purpose of education has shifted. And we don't always keep up with that, right? School is not about imparting a lot of information and testing kids on that information. They don't need that. They have computers in their pocket. 
Well, and, and the other thing is that I, I would argue that when you have that kind of structure where you're trying to fill up a child, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're, you're imprinting on them. You're sending them along the assembly line, right? Well, there was that show on TV years ago called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? An adult had to go up against a fifth grader for knowledge. And the adults lost all the time. And it had nothing to do with being smart. It was because the information they'd memorized through any rote process when they were in the fifth grade was long gone. Anyway, yeah. Went away. So that's not learning. Learning is not, you know, filling somebody with information for as long as they need it mm-hmm. to then forget. You know, there's a contextuality to learning that, that we sometimes ignore. And I think one of the reasons that you might see a lot of student-centered learning topics trending right now and people are feeling the need for it. It's, it's a backlash from what we've been going through for the past couple of years. When we moved to remote instruction, it is really hard to engage in student-centered learning when the teacher and the students are in two different places. And so a lot of teachers defaulted to directing the classroom again. It's hard to do anything else. Right. So anybody who's new to education, anybody who came in relatively recently and didn't teach much prior to 2020, and even people who didn't have the strongest student learning center structures established before they came in. Now, when you go into schools and you observe instruction, there is a lot of teacher-centered learning going on that wasn't happening prior to the pandemic. So that's why all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, we need to pause and remember what we forgot about how students learn. That's part of what makes this book and the content of this book so relevant because it's it's a step-by-step guide to how to do this with specific strategies for how to in a in a grade level range, secondary, that typically is less student-centered anyway. I can imagine there's always going to be some resistance around this idea because partly because of what you just said. We've fallen back on old structures, but we're, we also came in back into classrooms where we had students who were unsocialized for a couple of years and who had been through trauma and are suffering from all kinds of anxiety and we've got behavior issues going on. And so teachers are feeling like, oh no, we need to tighten up. If anything, we need to be tightening up. We need to be setting more structures, more deadlines, more guidelines, more expectations. Um, and that those things are actually essential to facilitating learning and you're creating a counter argument. So talk about how you would respond to those fears. You know, it's really funny how, I think we know differently that the harder we clamp down on kids, it's not like they suddenly fall into line. I've never seen that work. You know, one of my first rules of classroom management is don't engage in power struggles because you will lose. I remember learning that very early in my career. You know, if, if a child is sitting there and says, I don't want to do this assignment, instead of getting into a fight with them, inform the child that he or she has two choices. You can sit there and not do it. And then I don't have anything to look at. I can't tell how you're doing. And I really want you to succeed. Or you can try it. But don't start fighting about it because that's not going to make the kid do the work. You can't make them. You cannot force them. No. And I don't know who thinks you can. Cover free teaching doesn't mean that we don't teach. It means that we listen. And talk less. It means that we listen more and that we take the cues that are given to us and we take them seriously that, that kids are, are providing because they are the ones that we're there for. We're not there to, to listen to ourselves mm-hmm. and to teach ourselves. So that, that's the first thing. Also, a student-centered classroom doesn't mean there's no structure. There is a lot of structure. Okay. It is just a different kind of structure. So instead of my planning to stand up and talk about something for an hour every day, 
I'm going to take the different things that I plan to do with students, and I'm going to give them the ability to move around the classroom a little bit. So if originally you were going to read this article with me, maybe you're going to, over here, read this article together in a small group, while this group over here has a conversation with me about whatever we're not doing. It's, it's still very structured. There's just some movement. There's just some choice. It's a, it's a different framework. Um, and it's, it's one that requires a different kind of planning, but not more work. In fact, what happens is that while you're in the classroom, you have more space and time to move around as a teacher and connect with kids. In thinking about creating the kind of student-centered instruction that best targets where students need to grow, allows them freedom, and celebrates their successes, data is essential. Gathering, managing, and utilizing data for instruction is what today's sponsor, Schoolytics, is all about. Hi, this is Dr. Anna Hartramp, Director of Instructional Technology at Schoolytics. As a former special educator, helping students identify and achieve their goals is everything to me. To make that possible, I know regular communication with my team about what's been covered and what's missing was essential. The reality, though, is that often there isn't enough time in the day to keep everyone up to date. Hearing data-driven instruction is so frustrating when you know you don't have time to analyze and reflect on the data you're collecting. That's why I joined Schoolytics. Schoolytics changes the game for educators when it comes to managing and analyzing student data. Imagine this. Your planning period is about to start, and your progress reports and student scores are already organized and ready to share. Schoolytics delivers all this, plus insights you hadn't thought to ask for and won't want to teach without. Ready to level up your student data experience? Find Schoolytics, that's school, Y-T-I-C-S, at edcuration.com. So what are the impacts or implications for your expect making sure that your expectations stay high in a student-led classroom? So rigor is one of those concepts that often gets, again, sort of misunderstood. It's not about how hard kids work or how much we are controlling their behavior. It's how much critical thinking they can engage in and how much higher order thinking we're asking them to do. So for example, when we look at Bloom's taxonomy with these higher order performance verbs, and students will be able to identify, they'll be able to apply, they'll be able to engage in all these different skills. That's rigor. It has nothing to do with how our classroom is structured. If I want you know, students to cross-reference three different texts and apply an idea from one to the other two, they can do that in a lot of different ways. They don't have to be sitting in rows with me standing over them for that to happen. So the expectations for the course don't change. The rigor doesn't change. The content doesn't change. It's the how, not the what. Mm -hmm. Would you say, though, and, and I think that our listeners will be interested in this because Ed Curation is a resource marketplace, there are certain curriculums that do lend themselves more readily to a student-centered pedagogy or style of teaching. Would mm -hmm. you agree with that? Absolutely. So if I'm trying to figure out how to do a math problem and the only method of instruction available to me is the teacher's demonstrating at the front, which is a very common method, and then I have to do it at my desk, 
mm-hmm. or they circulate and see if I can do it. And I will tell you from my own experience, I couldn't. <laughs> then we move on. Math is cumulative. And I never got to talk to anybody about it. But if we increase language production in the four language domains of speaking, writing, reading, listening, this is where literacy comes into math. And students have an opportunity to talk to one another or to watch a video snippet from something like Khan Academy or to, you know, any, any other options where you can start getting other entryways into that content that gives them more to go on. And it also serves the need of a variety of learners, especially those who don't necessarily understand as readily what's going on until they have those supports and that opportunity to produce language, engage in discourse all of that good stuff. So any curriculum can go there. It's just about how the teacher uses that space. Okay, thanks. I would love, Miriam, and I I think our listeners would enjoy too, having you give us a snapshot or a success story of what this looks like in a classroom, just from your own experience. What is one of your favorite (laughs) hover-free success stories? One thing I would say, and, and this explains why my book is for secondary Partly, go into an elementary classroom and you'll see a lot more hopper-free instruction as a rule because stations and centers yeah. are student-centered a lot of the time. And so that's an expectation that exists before sixth grade. And there's also an interesting drop-off in engagement for students between grade five and grade six. And there are many reasons for that. That might be one of them. But in terms of a snapshot, and I was really lucky because when I learned how to teach, one of my cooperating teachers, my mentors, applied those methods that I see in elementary classrooms to her middle school seventh grade class. So I I saw it in action. But essentially what it is for me is really checking in pretty frequently with students. When I would teach a class, I wasn't seeing results that I expected. So students would be asked about something and they would say something. It would be really peripheral to what I thought the class was going to be about. That told me as a teacher that I needed to start somewhere else, go back or to frame it a different way. Sometimes it was my own lack of clarity. I had this happen a couple of weeks ago. I'm with a group of learners and we're supposed to do an activity where they read something together in specific groups and then we jigsaw what they've read. So different groups go to different. And we were sort of partway in and the group said, we don't have enough time to work in our first group. We're not, we're not, we're not getting this done. And We want to talk about it before we move on. And so really rigid teaching is, okay, I'm I'm going to keep going because you need to jigsaw this and I'm sorry. We only have this much time. Flexible teaching is, you just told me something. I'm going to listen to you. And we're going to figure out how we can readjust from here. So it all feeds into the same idea of listening to what people have to say. And when I first began to do this, I shut my mouth a whole lot more. You know, I would ask a question or even have it on the board so I didn't have to talk. And I would sit back and literally not speak for 20 minutes and just have students talk. And I warned them this was going to happen. I would say, we're not going to talk. I'm not going to talk for 20 minutes. And you can say whatever you like as long as it's appropriate. I'm going to take notes on what you're writing. And then we're going to use that for what we do next. When you first started kind of making these changes in your classroom, was it an adjustment for your students? Did you have to kind of apprentice them to what what it looked like for them to take charge of their own learning? Not as much as you would think. Really? Because it turned out, I mean, I think the hardest part was to build the kind of trust where, so for example, in that 
anybody can talk and I'm not talking. I noticed pretty early on that the same people were talking over and over again. And it's not like I can jump in and say, you talk now because I promised I'm not talking. So I had to do certain things. Like everybody gets two index cards. And when you say something, you throw your index card into the middle of a circle. And when you use up your index cards, you're done talking. Yeah, I've seen teachers do it with popsicle sticks, all kinds of other things, you know, tile, who has the floor. But then eventually that's a scaffold and they grow beyond that and don't need it anymore, hopefully, right? Right, and they feel comfortable and they trust you that you're not going to do something that makes them regret opening their mouths to begin with. You started making this shift by just setting yourself the simple goal of talking less. Am I right about that? You are right. What were the initial strategies that you used to teach yourself how to talk less? So one of them was was the circle conversation without me saying anything. That was one one big one that I always loved doing. That one was always fun for me. I don't know how fun it was for students, but I learned a lot from it. The idea of making discourse not necessarily verbal or communication not necessarily verbal. So I had a way that students could talk to one another called silent discussion where essentially it's almost like a chat, like a live chat, but they are writing on paper or on post-it notes and they might be putting it up on the wall and you could write a comment in response or you could check it off. You're gallery walking other people's responses. And that was also really helpful for students who didn't feel as comfortable literally talking. Another way to talk less is to give kids what I call a more accessible entry point. So maybe we had an assigned chapter about a very specific topic, but if I only ask about the information in the chapter, then the kids who didn't read the homework feel as though they're part of a gotcha and they have nothing to contribute. But what if I broaden whatever it is they read topic-wise to something that's more applicable to an entire human condition or to an entire philosophy or idea that they have seen before, then more kids will talk and I won't have to talk as much. And then also feel- an example of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, you know, if we're reading um, about- symbiosis, symbiotics, you know, two mutual, different, two different entities depending on one another for something. And they've read a science chapter that talks about how parasites work versus how symbiotic relationships work. And they have all these examples. A less accessible example would have them talk about that, you know, what animals are symbiotic or what, what life systems are symbiotic. And they would have to answer that very specifically to the reading. But if I started with a broader question, What does it mean to depend on somebody? What does it mean to feel as though you need something? And when do we need something versus when do we want? And so you start it that way. And then you start narrowing the focus to science and the reading. And then they're all beginning with an idea that doesn't seem very threatening. And they will learn better that way. And it's not lowering the rigor or the expectation that they need to know it. It just, one of my uh, colleagues called this low entry, high ceiling. We start in a place everyone can begin and then we bring them up to the expectation. And that's how we get there. Yeah. Or the idea of, I'm I'm thinking like this, this idea of transactional relationships, but it's always a broad place that everybody can access and have Mm -hmm. a part of before focusing in. I love that. I love that. Cause you're always going to have a certain number of kids who haven't done the reading. And this is also a way of inviting them in and sending them out of the classroom maybe wishing that they had done the reading because, wow, that was really interesting. I wish I could have participated more. Yeah. Are we trying to interest kids in what we're learning or are we trying to give them a message that we control them? Well, and you mentioned in your book um, that you, in your early teaching career, that you had that tendency to kind of prioritize behavior 
over academic progress, structures over authentic learning. And I think that's very common to not only new teachers, but, but probably especially new teachers, that we think that our job is to create a series of activities <laughs> to engage kids during a certain time period and to keep them on task, progressing through those activities. Yeah. During that and time. then the question is, are, where are these tasks all going? Mm-hmm. You know, why? What's the why behind what you're doing? Does the workload, the role of the teacher changes? Does the workload of the teacher change? It's more that it's reconfigured. Okay. So it's more transparent and there are fewer surprises. If I have designed a classroom so that I'm expecting to change things, I'm expecting to be responsive. I'm expecting that in the middle of the week, kids might tell me that they're not getting it and I need to think about how to do it differently. But I have them working in stations the next day That gives me an opportunity to think about, okay, how many kids didn't get it? Can I do small group instruction over here? Can I conference with this group of students? So it allows you to to move about the cabin somewhat and to see products before they become finalized. If I see a bunch of, you know, outlines for an upcoming assignment, I can look for patterns. I can see where kids are thinking, where, you know, ideas aren't sticking necessarily. And also when I grade the final product, I'm saving time because I've seen things already. It's not a surprise. It's not like I'm getting 30 copies of something or, you know, 150 copies of something and going, oh, man. We... Do I really have to read through all of these? Yeah. Well, and first of all, do I really have to read through all? And secondly, did I mess up because half of them are not what I expected? Mm-hmm. So you're saving yourself work on the back end. Mm-hmm. that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, love that. So Miriam, your book is Teach More, Hover Less. Where can our listeners find it? It is everywhere books are sold, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, my publisher, Norton. Read it, review it, tell me what you think. Push back, I love that. We'll make sure that all of those links go into the episode notes. How does a teacher use this? Is it kind of like a manual? Like can a teacher go in and say, here's a strategy. And I'm going to try that today. And next week, I'm going to try another strategy and kind of brick by brick sort of build these changes. Yes, they could do that. And it's organized into the chapters or each strategy or each approach stage of free instruction at a time. So they can literally pull the stuff out of the book, make copies. And then the last chapter is called putting it all together. And that's where we take the book takes you through a journey that a teacher experienced to implement all of these simultaneously and how they feed into one another. Nice. Okay. Well, I mean, we like things that we can put right into practice with our students. And then your upcoming book, Lead Like a Teacher. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. When? What is it and when will it be out? That is a book about how school leaders can use a teacher's perspective to make their schools more successful. Because one thing that I have noticed over the years is that there's, I, I call it an empathy gap when we stop teaching and go into administration and there's no longer that hands-on classroom time, a gulf begins to emerge. And no one necessarily wants to admit that, but it is true that unless you are teaching, unless you're in the trenches, you lack some understanding about what teachers are going through. You forget. You forget. And so this is a book all about how we can close that gap and how we can really value teachers as the instructional leaders that they are. Okay. and the experts that they are. And that's coming out in March of 2023. 
Okay, March of 2023, Lead Like a Teacher. And it's really a book for administrators and maybe district leaders, site level leaders of all kinds. Yes, and for anybody who's also thinking of becoming an administrator. As promised, you will find links to Miriam Plotinsky's website, articles, and her book, Teach More, Hover Less, in the episode notes. You'll also find a link for today's sponsor, Schoolytics, the data platform that teachers call a game changer, a total eye opener, and the best thing I've seen in tech in a long time. You'll find it for free when you visit Schoolytics at edcuration.com. That's school, Y-T-I-C-S, where you can create your free teacher account or request a pilot program for your district. Schoolytics provides powerful analytics for impact-driven educators. If you have a topic, tool, or resource you'd like to share with our podcast audience, or if you're searching for the best evidence-based curated instructional solutions, visit us at edcuration.com, where we're reshaping learning.